Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez. My guest today is Leslie Zane. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Henry. This is going to be fun. It is. It is going to be fun and an interesting topic. Uh, On this episode, we're going to discuss subconscious buying triggers. You know, we work hard every day to differentiate our small businesses, to position ourselves as the best choice in our potential customers or clients' minds. We spend lots of money and time trying to be as persuasive as possible. Is it possible that customer buying decisions are actually highly influenced by their subconscious and instinctual, instinctual associations with our brand? So Leslie Zane is an expert on this topic and is with us today to share valuable insights on how we can apply this unique approach to branding and marketing for our small businesses. To receive more information about the Howa business, including links on the show notes, or links to the show notes page rather, uh, including uh, how to get a free consultation with me, a free business coaching consultation, just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996. So Leslie Zane is an expert on consumer behaviors and the president and founder of Triggers Growth Strategy. Triggers is a brand strategy and innovation firm connecting brands with consumers in really unprecedented ways, as we will discuss in part today. She helps her clients change customer behavior at the instinctual level to accelerate share and revenue growth. Working in brand brand management for several blue chip companies throughout her successful corporate career, Leslie then found success to be remarkably hit or miss as to what makes a brand or a business successful or not. So she struck out on her own and founded Triggers to help companies create consistent success, especially in the arena of marketing. Leslie lives in Armonk, New York. So once again, Leslie Zane, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Henry. And thank you for that kind introduction. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. A lot of education there, Leslie. A very impressive. You, you were at Yale and then you got your MBA from Harvard, a history of art degree at Yale. What did you think you wanted to do back when you were at university? I'm always curious. I'm not sure I knew exactly what I wanted to be, uh, but I knew what I was good at. Uh, and I had these two different sides Um, to my personality. On the one hand, I was very analytical and I was fascinated by business. And on the other hand, I was very artistic and very creative. Uh, And so I think I knew at some, at some point that marketing was going to Mm. be a a good combination for me. Right, right. Because you're, you're joining the two when it comes with marketing and brand management. So that makes a lot of sense. So that, that caught your attention early on then it seems like. Yes, and, and Henry, I actually was a double major uh, in economics and art history. Wow. And that shows really the, the, those two sides. I was always trying to satisfy uh, those two sides of, mm-hmm. of what I was interested in. And, and I will tell you a funny story that from an early age, um, uh, even in high school and as a, a young girl, I think I was grappling with consumer behavior even then because uh, I love to make posters. And I used to make posters for all the clubs, for the sports clubs, for the teams, uh, for the book fair, for the annual musical. And I was grappling with 
copy and words and images. Um, my mother has a whole stack of these <laughs> posters in, a, in the bottom of a closet in her house. And I went back and I looked at them and I was like, wow, th these, these are pretty good. <laughs> they were clever, they were simple, and they were provocative. And so I guess, you know, some of the things that we end up doing later in life, they do kind of come out at an, at an early age. Right. Right. But, but, but for most kids, it would have been maybe the artistic component of it. So how pretty was the picture? But you seem to, from early on, know that it was a combination of images and words that got people to take action. Yes. And, and the one poster that I remember to this day, because everybody in the school loved it, um, it was for the book fair. And I went to a school that had uniforms. And I had a, a visual of a bookshelf with books on it. And the book ends that were holding up the books were a boy on the left and a girl on the right, mm. uh, kneel, you know, in, in kneeling position, holding up the books. Their bodies were holding up the books. And the slogan was, support the book fair. Huh. And so even then, I was looking for very simple visuals uh, combined with powerful phrases uh, that would pull people in, get engagement, and you know, drive people to do the behavior that we wanted. Very clever. Very clever. <laughs> so you went on to have a, a very successful corporate career, I'm sure very well compensated. Why did you then decide, I want to do my own thing? So I was working at some wonderful companies. Uh, I was in brand management at some, uh, you know, terrific blue chip marketing organizations uh, like Procter & Gamble, um, like Revlon, Avon, etc. And I learned a, a lot there, but I also saw what wasn't working. And it, it astounded me. I was really quite surprised that here I was at some of the, the top brand management companies in the world, and yet success was very hit or miss. Hmm. Um, and I felt uh, that my perspective on how to make things better um, was, it, it was hard to, to get my, my thoughts through at that stage of my career. Um, and so I went off uh, to create a process and an approach that would help companies get consistent top-line growth every single time, hmm. you know, not just be, uh, you know, an accident or a random event. A lot of branding, I felt, was focused on creating pretty pictures and, and clever slogans, but didn't necessarily move the needle and didn't necessarily drive market share. And I thought, well, if it's not going to do that, what's the point? Uh, so I set off to create triggers to, to do that, to find a way to drive consistent growth every single time. Had you had thoughts or aspirations prior to that of starting your own business? You know, I really didn't. I really didn't. I think it, there was a moment, I mean, I, I can tell you the moment that I decided that I was going to do that. I was working for a top baby care company. And um, in, this, uh, in this position, I was working on advertising. And at that point, they only still had moms and babies uh, in advertising. And, you know, pretty much Caucasian, blonde-haired, blue-eyed 
um, you know, moms and babies, not one father. And I saw that baby care was changing. I thought that I saw that child care was changing. Um, it was obvious to me um, from other trend research that we were doing that fathers were getting more involved in in baby care and in child care. So I recommended that we put the first father in a baby care ad. Well, I, I know you're going to laugh, but <laughs> this was a revolutionary idea at the it. time. Revolutionary. And my bosses were completely opposed to it. Uh, they said that their data showed that it was still moms that bought these products primarily. And they were right. That's true. But what they were missing was the connection that moms felt when they, to the brand when they saw a father tenderly taking care of a baby and, you know, washing, you know, washing the baby's hair. And so it was a very long haul. And I would say that the low point for me was that I received a performance review that said in writing, uh, Leslie is too passionate about putting <laughs> fathers in advertising. <laughs> very specific, at least. <laughs> very specific. And, but this was a, like a dagger in my right. heart. Right. It went on to say, and this is a, an executional concern, not a strategic one. Oh, my God. You could wow. not have insulted me more. Uh, <laughs> because I, if, if I thought of myself as anything, it was as a strategic uh, you know, person and a strategic business person. Um, so anyway, I worked. I kept... <laughs> I didn't let that stop me, though. <laughs> I kept pushing to put the first father in a baby care ad. They finally did it. And um, I guess you can, can guess what happened. The, the ad was the highest scoring commercial in the company's history, and the product started flying off the shelves. So they um, did what you wanted to do, but was it too late at that point? You had already decided the only way I'm going to really do what I think is right, what I think is right for the clients without any barriers or restraints and constraints is to go do my own thing. Had it already been triggered such that there was no turning back as far as you going out on your own? No, I guess I could have, I could have stayed, but I, but I did realize, and, and I think this is an interesting um, notion, it is hard to be an employee with a different point of view. It really is. Uh, and so I did not start really getting pickup for my ideas and my philosophies about branding until I became a consultant um, and started, you know, writing articles and, and publishing thought leadership and, uh, and all of that. Uh, and so I think I, I realized it at some, in, in some way, even back then, um, that I needed to make a move if I really wanted to get my process and my approach into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. How long from that triggering event, that review to leaving and starting your own, your own firm? It wasn't that long. Um, I would say probably six months to a year, but okay. I will, you know, I will be very transparent that I did a lot of soul searching through that time. You know, I had gone to Harvard Business School and I thought that I needed to sort of climb the corporate ladder, become a chief marketing officer. And I had to speak to a lot of people. I went to see some, some therapists, you know, to kind of help me get through um, my own personal barriers, um, you know, of, of 
feeling like I had to go the conventional route um, because what I was taking was a more unusual, you know, route of, of starting my own company and that, you know, brought with it, you know, risk um, and uncertainty. Um, but I, I kind of got through all of that. And then once I, once I made the move, business started um, happening almost immediately. And I never looked, I never looked back. It was the best decision I ever made. That advice that you were getting or that input you were getting from people probably that you trusted or that were in your inner circle, generally, what were they telling you? I would say the most powerful thing somebody said to me or asked me was, what do you like doing the best and what are you really best at? And I said, what I'm really good at is brand strategy. And in my current job uh, inside brand management, you actually don't get to do that all the time. You have to do all kinds of other things. You're doing inventory planning and you're managing your P&L and you're managing people. And there are many other responsibilities that a brand manager um, ha has. It's a very multidimensional job, which is partly why I liked it. But this person asked me, what are you really best at of all of those things? And I said, definitely consumer insights and brand strategy. And they said, well, why don't you go do that? And I said, oh, I don't, I don't know if I can. I, I have to be good at all those other things. And, and this person said, why? If you put your strengths against what you do, you're going to be successful. After all, does Michael Jordan try to play the piano or does he play basketball? Uh, and I, I remember those words. I remember that example uh, 25 years ago. Um, this person said that to me and, and it really, it really um, struck home. Yeah, very interesting. Was that then one of the big fears, if you can think back to what you were thinking about, okay, this risk? It sounds like part of it is, well, I don't know enough or I don't know enough about business. What, what were some of the things that you were fearing about making this transition? I don't think I personally had as many fears. It was more like what I thought I was supposed to do. Having gone to, you know, Harvard Business School, I thought I had to climb the corporate ladder. That that was I the only, to, that was going to be the only measure of success for all of that correct. work that you had invested in education that you had gotten. Correct. Correct. And it, and, and it, it hadn't been presented to me earlier, you know, in, in school or really anywhere that an entrepreneurial route was sort of an acceptable uh, path. Yeah. Um, it was so not I had modeled really... for you. It was nobody that mentored you or said, right. listen, you should think about this. That's right. Yeah. So I think it was really, that was the main barrier. And then I will tell you that there were some family members, not my parents, but there were some family members who said, oh, every new business fails you know, it's, it's going to be very hard for you to do. Um, and, you know, that only actually made me feel more committed Is to going right? forward. Because you wanted to me, prove them wrong, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. If, if you tell me I can't do something, I am definitely going to try to do it and, and prove you wrong. That's right. I love that. I love that. I find that often we get that from people who have never succeeded in business, right? Yeah. They've yeah. either never tried it or they tried it once and it didn't work. And so what I find, Leslie, is a lot of times people will, they don't want us to do it because they don't want us to prove why they don't have the courage to do it. What do you think about that? I think that's fair. I think that's 
I think that insight is probably pretty, pretty true. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for me, it was the kick in the pants that I needed to go out and and do it. it. Do you wish you would have done it earlier or was the timing right? No, the timing was perfect. I I don't think I would have known enough um, and had had seen enough uh, things go up and go down. Um, You know, I, I learned a lot by seeing what worked and what didn't in these companies. And it also gave me a real glimpse uh, inside the minds of my, my clients and the challenges that, they're, that they face every day. You know, we're one of the few consulting firms that's made up of, you know, totally of people who have been inside mm-hmm. brand management. Um, so we know exactly what they're up against and what those pressures look like. And I think that was very useful. Yeah, that's great. All right, let's start diving into it. I, I, I think you had mentioned that the best place to start is with uh, an explanation of the difference between subconscious, the subconscious triggers approach to marketing versus what we call conscious or the typical marketing that we do certainly in our small businesses. Let, let's start there. Tell me the difference between those two approaches. Sure. So um, our brains, when we're making a decision, have these two different sides, so to speak, um, the conscious and the subconscious. The conscious is very aware. It's awake. Um, It's awake and it goes to sleep, obviously. Um, And it processes information very slowly uh, at 40 bits per second. And when you market to the conscious brain, it sees you coming it's actually very rigid and resistant to change and very skeptical. In other words, you know somebody is trying to sell you something. So you can try to convince the conscious brain to buy your brand. You can incentivize it with coupons and discounts and buy one, get one free offers. You can try to persuade it with superlative claims, but it's really hard to move. And if you think about why it is so difficult for companies to gain share and to get growth, it's very much because of the, the, the conscious and very rigid consumer brain. But it doesn't have to be that way because there's this other part of the brain that actually controls 90 to 95% of our branch purchases, and that is the subconscious brain. And that is on automatically, it's on all the time. Uh, It doesn't wake up and go to sleep. And it processes information much more quickly at 40 million bits per second. And the fascinating thing about the subconscious is that it's actually much more malleable than the conscious brain. Because you're not aware that ideas are coming in there, they seep in little by little, and you can influence it actually much more rapidly. So if you have a choice between approaching the subconscious brain or the conscious brain, um, and I'll explain later how to, how to do that, um, you'll, you actually will find that you'll be able to gain share and grow your business faster by using subconscious marketing techniques. It works faster and it requires less resources. Which, which, can, which can seem, I know to me, somewhat counterintuitive because I've always operated under the belief that that brand building in the traditional sense for a small business owner is too expensive and takes too much time. And that's in part why we resort to the, the fighting that friction of trying to, to influence people, trying to trick them, trying to motivate them. And, and that's why we find so much resistance there, yeah? 
That, that's exactly right. You are still trying to motivate the consumer, but you're doing it when you use the subconscious route, you're piggybacking on things that are already in the person's mind and memories. I see. And by piggybacking on ideas that already exist, you're finding the path of least resistance mm -hmm. and it enables ideas, um, brands, business ideas, messages, whatever it is you're, you're selling uh, to go down easier, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I think this starts to get into what you talked about on a, on a great TED talk. It's on your website that you did on this whole concept of, of subconscious triggers in this, what you call the brand connectome. Does it make sense to explain that next? Yeah, absolutely. So what the brand connectome is, is a network of associations, positive and negative, that get glued to your brand over time. So I, I almost visual, visualize it like a little, you know, ball in the center, a little circle in the center. That's your brand. And little by little, almost like, you know, yellow sticky paper, yellow sticky pads, um, they get these ideas that you are accumulating over time, get glued to the brand and little by little form an ecosystem of positive and negative associations. And those associations are everything from ideas and experiences that people have, images, uh, symbols, um, experiences, um, words, uh, really anything and everything that has ever been associated with your brand in the consumer's mind gets stuck, glued to your brand. And what forms is this ecosystem. Um, that exists in your subconscious mind. It's in your memory. It's not in your conscious brain. So when you go, let's talk about a, you know, a, a typical shopping trip to the grocery store. If you go to the orange juice section, um, my guess is that you're pretty much just reaching for that same brand over and over again that's your go-to brand. Uh, you don't even think about it. It's, you certainly don't stand there at the aisle contemplating, should I buy this one or that one? This one has 30 benefits. No, this one has 20. None of that's happening. Um, most likely, if you're like most people, you just reach. You're on autopilot. And the reason you reach for the brand that you do, let's say it's Tropicana, um, is because you have a brand connectome sitting in your subconscious that has more positive associations for Tropicana and is larger in your brain. It's more salient. It actually takes up more physical real estate in your brain. Uh, that is why you choose that brand, Tropicana, over another one. Yeah. Great example for me because my choice is Tropicana Pure Premium specifically, not the extra pulp, not the no pulp, but the regular pulp. And so it's almost like you're describing, I can see it. I don't even see the other brands. I just see this one. But Leslie, that's an association that's built. I grew up in South Florida. That's an association that's developed over a lot of years for me, right? That's right. And what's fascinating about that is that people think, companies even think, that they control everything that's inside that brand connectome, but they don't. 
it's not just merely the product, the brand name, uh, maybe the orange juice formula itself. It's a whole ecosystem of associations that the brain has created, that you have created through your personal journey uh, with that brand. So I'm guessing maybe your mom used it in her house. And maybe you have some positive associations about Tropicana because where, of where you lived. Um, and so that is exactly the point that I'm making, that the brand Connectome is, is made up of cumulative memories, some going back as early as childhood. And what forms is this vast network of associations. And if you want to grow your brand, you need to know what's in there. Mm-hmm. You need to know what the positive and negative associations are that are in there because the positive ones are going to help you grow and the negative ones are holding back your growth. But the bottom line is you don't make your brand decisions. Your brand connect home does. Mm-hmm. I got to think that's one of the reasons I'm curious as to why sometimes repackaging can be such a failure for some products. I, I love that question. <laughs> I love that question because our brains are GPS systems and we have mental maps. And what happens when a company changes their packaging, even ever so slightly, we tend to see sales go down. And that certainly wasn't the intention. They're, they're making these modifications because they think they're needed, uh, they're improvements, but every single time, almost every time, Uh, we see sales initially go down uh, because consumers have to make an adjustment. Um, And they were used to seeing one thing and now they're seeing another. And the first thing that that makes them question is, is my product the same? Have they done something to it? Maybe I won't like it anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's a real tricky area, uh, making packaging changes. You have to do it with extreme caution beware. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. This is Henry Lopez with a brief interruption to introduce you to our sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. Small businesses have unique needs. And despite the current uncertainty, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find the right person quickly. A couple of things I personally find extremely useful about LinkedIn Jobs include the job description templates and the skills keywords. It makes it easy and fast for me to post a job opening and start receiving qualified candidates. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 690 million members worldwide. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for and puts your job post in front of qualified members every day so that it's seen by people looking for jobs like yours. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay for what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash how Again, that's linkedin.com slash H-O-W to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Where I'm still now putting it all together is we talked about, you explained how I can much more quickly appeal to the subconscious triggers 
we just got finished talking about how that takes sometimes a lifetime of associations. So I'm missing, I need you to help me understand how I can quickly tap into that and not have to be in business for 40 years to establish those, that connectome. Right. So what you want to do is you want to add a lot of positive associations quickly. You want to get rid of negative associations. So as soon as a negative association comes up, you want to replace it with a positive association. Um, so you're almost like pruning all the time, uh, your, your little brand connectome tree. Uh, and if you wanted to make inroads, let's say you were a small company that wanted to make inroads on in a larger company, what you would want to do is um, give some negative associations to your competitors. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Dollar Shave Club came out of the blue. Literally overnight, it, it built its business. And it made tremendous inroads in the much larger dominant razor companies, Gillette and Schick. And it did it without ever mentioning Gillette and Schick um, or saying we're better than they are. Uh, what, what the uh, CEO of the company did is he created a video, which he put on YouTube, which was very funny, and had a slew of positive associations about his company. Uh, he talked about um, that all you really need is a simple, low-cost razor. Uh, he depicted his company in a garage, in a, in a warehouse, without, you know, shiny offices and um, marble staircases, um, which he indicated that you would be paying for with the, with the larger companies. Um, he showed um, immigrants working at his company, suggesting that his, he's making, creating jobs um, for people. And uh, he also um, spent some time talking about the fact that you don't need a razor that has a flashlight, an air conditioner, a hammer, <laughs> and a, you know, a, a, a toolbox on it. Um, and in really a, a matter of a minute, he created this idea that Dollar Shave Club was really all you need, a simple low-cost razor, and that all these other fancy razors were just gadgets and that you were paying a premium for something that you didn't need. And he made, he made, he made tremendous inroads in these large companies very, very quickly. Uh, he, he, was a, he, he was a disruptor. The, the brand was a disruptor. Right. And that is something that really any small company can learn from. So the, the, the takeaway is you build a lot of positive associations for your brand very quickly. You give some negative associations to your competitor, and that's a, a, the one-two punch that enables you to make uh, share inroads rapidly. Mm -hmm. I got it. And, and that, that makes a lot of sense. When we come back to a consumer package example, like the orange juice, I just went through this last week. Where I just moved back to Florida and I, I don't buy as much orange juice anymore because I've had to cut back on the sugars of it. But I went to buy it. But the decision now was I want to buy something that's more fresh squeezed, more local. And the brand that I picked, what they've done is in their packaging, there's a picture of a person. So in other words, I, I'm sure what they're trying to do is get me to associate this brand with a, a real Floridian citrus grower, let's say. And it seems to me like that's how they're trying to very quickly connect to something that I'm going to respond to at my subconscious level. Is that fair? 
I think, I think it is. I think it is. What's, what's interesting about um, Tropicana, I, I, don't, I don't know if you know the story, but they had originally on their package and they still have today with one big interruption, uh, they had a picture of a real orange mm-hmm. with a red and white straw stuck into the middle of it. Right. And the instant communication of that cue or code um, which we would we would call a trigger um, that communicated instantly that you were getting fresh juice straight from the orange with nothing else in there, mm-hmm. no, you know, nothing else added. They made the the typical mistake, which you actually brought up earlier, of changing that package. It's probably around twenty years ago now. Mm-hmm. I remember um, where they replace that orange with a refreshing glass of orange juice. And the difference between those two images, they're both appealing, but the difference is that one was a trigger and one wasn't. The glass of orange juice said that it was refreshing, but it didn't have all the positive associations that that orange and that straw had. Um, which were that it was real, that it was natural, that it was fresh from the grove, that it was, you know, just picked, uh, just a whole slew of positive associations. And one of the things that we teach our clients is that appeal is really not a good measure for judging anything, whether it's advertising or packaging or any marketing initiative. It can be very misleading because consumers like a lot of things. The question is, what has meaning? Mm. And the orange with the straw in it had so much more meaning attached to it that that Tropicana, you know, inadvertently took that uh, that incredible, powerful cue off. And um, I mean, the, the the story is really uh, hi- historical. Uh, in um, in marketing circles, you know, the sales immediately took a steep decline, and um, a few you know weeks or months later, they you know immediately had to put back Famously the original package. Back. Yeah, it's so that those are the kind of decisions that I suspect, as you alluded to, get made. Even I'm sure with focus groups, that says, "Oh, we love the new symbol," but they didn't ask the right questions. That's exactly right. So if I were to, you know, tell anybody, teach anybody anything about how to judge marketing content, um, it's all about meaning. You know, what is it? What does it mean to you? What is it actually communicating? That is far more important than whether it's an appealing, you know, picture or an appealing set of words. It may be appealing, but it may not be effective. Mm-hmm. All right. I'd like to, if you could share another example. And, and we bring it, continue to bring it down to the small business owner as to how we can begin to apply this approach to marketing. Again, you, you, you touched on it on the outset, which is that most of us, the type of marketing that we're doing is about, it's this filled with friction. We're trying to overcome that skepticism that people have, especially nowadays where they have so many resources at their disposal to, to vet us and to find the truth. So, are there some tips that you think uh, we can start to apply for a typical, very small business that help me start to tap into these subconscious triggers? Yes, absolutely. Um, so there are category triggers and there are brand triggers. The first thing is what is your business? 
you know, what, what do you do? And so imagery and language that helps frame the business clearly in people's minds, you know, what is this thing? That's the first step. And believe it or not, that's actually a first step that a lot of companies get wrong mm. um, because they can have products that are confusing. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll just give you an example. Um, I worked on a pet care brand once and it had a brand that was a dinner, but it placed it in a box that looked like a snack. So it wasn't packaged in the same way that a typical meal or dinner food would be for, uh, for a dog. You know, meals come in those big bags with lots of kibble. Right. Well, this was a, a, a brand that was actually a bone uh, It enabled the dog to eat um, its entire dinner, but in the shape of a bone. But they, they put it in a box that looked like a snack box. And no matter what they did, it, it just it, what could not succeed hmm. um, because they put it in a, a box that communicated, forget about the benefits of it because the benefits were tremendous. Right. It was going to be fun for the dog. It was going to be an enjoyable eating experience. Um, the, the parent of the dog loved watching the dog, you know, um, eat up this, this bone with, with, with such pleasure uh, and gave both of them pleasure. But none of that mattered because they couldn't even, you know, get past the first step, which is what is this thing? Yeah. Um, and so the first thing you want to do is be really clear about what your category triggers are. And in those situations, it's okay to be like everybody else. You don't need to differentiate on your frame of reference on the, the category that you're in. I, I give the example of the snow-capped mountain in bottled water. The snow-capped mountain is a phenomenal, powerful trigger in the bottled water category because it communicates all kinds of positive things, freshness, mm -hmm. purity, pristine, natural, eco-friendly. I could go on. There are a lot of companies with snow-capped mountains on their bottles. That's okay. That's okay because it's a really powerful cue and it says that you're a, a bottled water and, and that you've got you know water coming from a good source. Now, if you want to differentiate yourself that's fine. You can take that snow-capped mountain and design it in a, a unique way. You could make it an, an abstract snow-capped mountain, and you can turn a category trigger into a brand trigger so that you look more unique. But the, the first thing you want to do is have triggers that actually cue to people what category are you in. Mm -hmm. And after that, you start developing your brand triggers. Uh, what is your story of what you do and the benefits that you provide? And for a lot of companies and particularly small ones, it's, it's really true for everybody, but it's a, something that's really neglected. What is your expertise? What do you do better than anybody else? What do you make better than anybody else? How do you do what you do? Today, there's so much proliferation of companies and products and brands that the benefit is almost less important than how you do what you do, the process by which you do it. Uh, and so I usually advise companies to, and particularly small companies, to try to articulate and visualize their process um, because that's gonna help them stand out and also give the client confidence that they really know what they're doing and they're mm -hmm. gonna do a great job.
Yeah, great stuff. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, in light of where we are now with with COVID, I know you've got some further thoughts on, you know, that the additional complexity or challenges that we have in this environment. And so, what are your thoughts there on how instincts are maybe changing? Maybe it's short term, maybe it's long term. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So um, I think that instincts are very much in flux. Um, and I think we are evolving, but we haven't finished evolving. I think we're like midway through, um, unless this goes on for more than two years, in which right. case we may not even be midway through. But here's the good news. I mean, obviously, this is a time of tremendous tragedy, and we've all been touched by it, I'm sure, in, uh, in some very negative ways. But from a business standpoint, I actually see this as a time of tremendous opportunity. What we've seen over 25 years of work is that times of, times of volatility are times when customers and consumers, both B2B and B2C, create more new relationships than ever before. Mm, okay. um, and so, and, and what we have seen you know, up until this point is that if somebody gets married or divorced or has a first child uh, or has a health scare, these are disruptive times in their lives and they are looking for new relationships at that time. Well, you couldn't have a more volatile time than now. Right. And we've seen qualitative and quantitative evidence that people are creating new relationships. They're new, bringing new brands into their home uh, homes and they're creating new relationships with uh, people and brands and companies. So really the opportunity is that the number four brand can become the number two mm -hmm. um, or the number, the, a new brand can get into the mix. And the number one brand can also become the number two or three. So they better watch out. That's right. Yeah. Um, but it or, really or it could be it, gone, right? I mean, that's, 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 that's yeah. the thing. It's, that's the volatility. But that's such a great perspective. I'm glad you shared that because, again, going back to our orange juice example, because of where we are right now, where we're questioning things, we're open, I may not just as automatically pick it. I might scan and say, well, now this is more important to me or whatever it might, whatever component it might be because I'm, I'm in this questioning phase right now. I'm in this in this phase where I'm not an automatic pilot, yeah? Yeah, 100%. One of the things that we've written about, uh, and you can look up this article in, uh, your listeners can look up this article in Newsweek if they're interested uh, in it, just put in Leslie Zane and Newsweek and it'll come up. I talk about the COVID connectome because really everything has a connectome. You have a connectome, I have a connectome, brands have connectomes, um, the president of the United States has a connectome. Joe Biden has a connectome. Um, and so does COVID. And what we have seen is that the COVID connectome is made up of lots of different instincts and associations, some of which are newer and some of which are just accelerations of existing uh, trends. But there are, there are two large clusters to this connectome that are fighting against each other. One is very preservation-oriented, driven by our survival instinct. It's very risk-averse. It makes us spend less money. It makes us very concerned about our health and safety. Uh, and it makes us want to just kind of stay stuck and stagnant and stay home. Mm -hmm. And then there's another cluster to the connectome, which we call the persevering 
part of the connectome. And that's driven by our very strong human desire to make progress and move ahead. These two clusters are fighting against each other for dominance in the same way that brands fight for dominance in the subconscious. And the one that, that becomes larger, that has, gets the larger footprint for brands is the one that wins. And similarly, in the COVID connectome, the part of the, the connectome that is going to become larger and more dominant and have more positive associations ultimately is going to be the winner. Mm -hmm. So what I talk about in the Newsweek article is that right now, the reason that the customer, the consumer confidence index is so low is because our preservation side is winning over the perseverance side. For us to spend money and get out there and have an economic recovery, the persevering part of the connectome needs to get more associations. What that means for companies is that you actually need to talk to and message to both sides of the connectome. You need to make people feel safe and comfortable and protected. Uh, If you're a retailer, for example, they need to feel that uh, they're going to be safe in your business. And you would simultaneously need to inspire people to move forward Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to persevere and to move ahead with their lives. So companies actually have a role in helping the recovery happen if they can make people feel safe. And I mean, I don't mean just like, you know, wiping down the counters. I mean, really do really the safe. max yeah. um, to, to make them feel that you've, you've reached that kind of highest standard of safety, but also inspire them to move forward and make progress in their lives. And if you have that one, two, Uh, punch on your messaging, you're going to connect with people. And you may even gain a competitive advantage versus your your competitors, um, because I believe that the companies that do a really great job of both of those things are going to win at this time and distinguish themselves from other other companies and other other retailers. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And and I think, as we've articulated, I think it creates opportunities for smaller, more nimble businesses. Absolutely. That's a great point. All right. Great stuff. We can go on for hours on this, but we got to start to wrap it up. But uh, tell us, uh, summarize for us the services that you offer through Triggers. Um, so the, the essential thing that Triggers does is we change customer behavior at the instinctive level so that the brand can become the dominant, the, the brand that we're working on can become the dominant instinctive choice. That's essentially the foundation of everything we do. Uh, But the services we offer are everything from brand strategy projects to innovation, new products, new services, customer experience, uh, advertising, um, digital strategy. Uh, You know, there there pretty pretty much isn't a marketing service that we, you know, that's out there that we don't provide. The difference is that the approach we take is... uh, leveraging subconscious shortcuts to make growth happen faster and more consistently. Yeah. Great stuff. And then I know you've got a special download for our listeners. So tell us about that. Yes. So, you know, if you think about it, um, the traditional rules of marketing were written 50 years ago uh, in the days of Mad Men. Um, And most marketing is still using that same rule book, but that was before we knew anything about brain science. And so Triggers has developed a new set of rules 
um, and I call it the, the, the five new rules of marketing. Uh, and that uses the rule book that we've developed, uh, which replaces pretty much every single rule from the past uh, with a rule based on uh, how the brain actually works, leveraging those subconscious shortcuts. And that's what I'd like to offer to your listeners uh, today. If they go to lesliezane.com slash how, uh, they can download that, uh, that PDF. Wonderful. Thanks for that offer. If you didn't get that, again, it's lesliezane.com forward slash how, or go to the howabusiness.com and I'll have a link to it there as well. Uh, Leslie, a book recommendation. Is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend to us? Um, there are you know, so many wonderful books out <laughs> there, but if we were talking about this specific area of understanding how the subconscious works, I would say that the first thing people should read is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. That'll give everybody a, a primer of system one, system two thinking. Uh, and then if they'd like to read about uh, how to actually crack the code on brand growth, they can go to my Knowledge at Wharton article, which is called just that, Cracking the Code on Brand Growth, Leslie Zane. Uh, and then one other one I would suggest, uh, the most powerful touch point of all, um, the subconscious uh, in CMO.com. And that's another article that I've written recently. Wonderful. And we'll have links to all of those on the show notes page. Again, you can find them all there. Great stuff, Leslie. This has been a fantastic, fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for you know explaining it to me and then also the examples. And it really is a, a, a very different way for us as small business owners to think about marketing. Let's wrap it up though. What, what's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation that we've had about subconscious buying triggers? I would say the most important thing to understand is that if you want to grow your brand or company in the marketplace, you first have to grow your brand in the brain of your prospective customers. And the, the two things are completely linked. One doesn't happen without the other. Yeah. And tell us again where you want us to go online to learn more. Uh, triggers.com uh, would, would be great. And I'd love to link with you as well. Uh, I always like to meet new people. So feel free to reach out. Wonderful. Leslie, thanks again so much for being with us today, sharing all this knowledge. I appreciate it. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Great conversation. Thank you, Henry. My pleasure as well. This is Henry Lopez. And thanks for listening to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Leslie Zane. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at our website, thehowabusiness.com. Or you can just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996 to receive more information. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.